welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by community pastor Ian Simpkins as we begin a brand new series, Reasons. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Good morning, Yellow Box. How are you feeling? My name is Ian. I am thrilled that you are here, and I'm thrilled to be here myself. I want to start with this comment. Uh, trust is a weird thing, isn't it? It just is strange. Like, each and every one of us, every single day, model trust in some way, shape, or form. We trust that our car will start in the morning, or we trust that our mail will get to where we send it, or we trust our barber when he or she says this new experimental haircut is really hip with the kids, Right? All, all of us model trust in some way, shape, or form, and, and trust is important, but what does it mean to actually trust someone or, or to trust something? Now, trust and confidence are closely related, but they're not exactly the same. Confidence comes as a result of knowledge and experience. For example, we can be confident that these chairs are going to hold us because 99.999% of my experience in sitting with chairs, they usually hold me up, except for that one time at church camp, right? Like that's been our experience, chairs hold us up. Trust, however, is not always based on or related to past experience or knowledge. Trust, at least in part, requires faith. That's why I think trust can leave us feeling a bit vulnerable. It's kind of like this. Um, anyone ever gone to like a, a camp or a conference where they had to do like a trust fall? Anyone ever done a trust fall? It's, it's terrifying. My uncle told a story once of the first trust fall he ever um, invited someone else to do and he had him climb into the V of this tree and he gave him all the instructions and fold your arms and then close your eyes and fall and I will catch you. The only thing is my uncle forgot to mention to fall backwards. So this poor guy climbed six feet up into a tree, folded his arms, closed his eyes, and just fell forward to his doom. He's fine, but they didn't talk for like six months. You, you can be confident that your friends or coworkers are going to catch you, right? But it's not actually trust until you finally actually fall back into the arms of those who promise to catch you. Well, in a lot of ways... I think the Bible is like that. We're continuing our series called Reasons, and today we're asking this question. Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Bible? Now, answering that question, I think, requires first that we talk about what the Bible actually is. I mean, the the Bible is the most sellingest book in the history of the world, But here's what the Bible is not, and maybe you've actually heard these illustrations used before. It's not an owner's manual. Has anyone ever actually read all of the owner's manual before? Anyone ever been moved to tears by an owner's manual? I have, but it's usually only realizing that I built the thing wrong and I have to undo it again, right? You're never moved by an owner's manual. It's not a legal contract. It wasn't like hand-delivered by a bunch of chubby cherubs thousands of years ago. When we open the Bible, we are eavesdropping on an ancient spiritual journey. And we have to remember that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. 
It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling. And they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand-year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually, they were conquered by the Babylonians, who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible. What's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the Law. That's Israel's five-book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff, was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. Okay, so that was a lot. But simply put, the Bible isn't a book, it's a library of books. 66 books to be exact. Written by 40 authors over a period of over a thousand years in three different languages on three different continents. So it might be helpful to think about it like this. The Bible is a lot like one of these, a mixtape. 
Uh, oh, sorry. For those millennials in the room, this is called a cassette tape. And in fact, if you understand the relationship between this and this, we can be friends. <laughs> right? Okay. There's coffee available in the back. Anyway, um, you guys remember? On, on a mixtape, right, we would like seamlessly record our favorite tunes. We usually had the cassette in our car radio, and then when our favorite song would come on, we would just pray the DJ would stop talking, right? And we would record these mixtapes for uh, a myriad of reasons. Maybe you made one to aid you like in a long road trip, or like me, real cheese ball, I recorded one to like give to the girl I had a crush on. That didn't go very well. Um, but perhaps you recorded on this mixtape something like this. Anyone? And, uh, ah, yes, Journey, the, the nickelback of the 80s. Um, inevitably, somebody was always tempted to stop believing, and this song was an emphatic don't. Or maybe, maybe you had this tune on there. Anyone, wait for it. Anyone? <laughs> people are proclaiming, people are testifying Ario's Speedwagon in the house. Or uh, maybe anyone a fan of this tune, maybe you recorded this on your mixtape. The most average drummer of all time, I said it. He's average, he's okay. Okay, so maybe it wasn't any of those songs for any of you, but you get the idea, though. The, the Bible is not just simply a book. It's a collection of books. It's like a mixtape filled with poetry and letters and allegory and travel logs and family trees and history and narrative and so on and so on and so on. There's stories of love and adventure and instruction and heroism and cowardice. And like the Bible, mixtape tells a story. And it's the story of us. And so when we talk about the Bible, I think it's important for us to remember this. The Bible is a mirror, not binoculars. When we dive into the Holy Word... It's meant to reveal and show something about ourselves. And so often, Scripture, unfortunately, is used to cast judgment on others somewhere else. The Bible is a mirror, not binoculars. So that's what the Bible is. But can we actually trust the Bible, though? That's, that's really our question this morning. Can I trust the Bible? And it's a, it's a huge question. Uh, we're not going to have time to cover all of it this morning. So I want to hone in on the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's essentially what they are. The Gospels are an ancient biography. They're an ancient biography that recorded eyewitness accounts of Jesus. So first of all, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, can be understood as an ancient biography. Each of the four writers set to write out a personal eyewitness account of Jesus from a particular perspective for a particular audience. So these aren't just stories that were made up about Jesus. We have four portraits of Jesus painted by four different authors from eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts. Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and teaching. Mark got his information from Peter, who's also an eyewitness. Luke, a historian, thoroughly researched his gospel from eyewitness accounts. And John was an eyewitness and recorded what he saw and heard. It's really important to remember this. They wrote from different perspectives for different audiences, living for different reasons and different circumstances. So they weren't just biography. 
They were also art. This is important to keep in mind when approaching Scripture, both biography and art. And the Gospels are reliable. Now, when I say reliable, I mean a couple of things. It means that we have a lot of evidence that the Gospels are dependable representations of what was originally written about Jesus in the first century. Now, one of the ways that you determine whether or not ancient literature is reliable is to first ask this question. How many years were between the original work and the earliest copy? How many years between the original work and the earliest copy? Okay, so stick with me here. Today, uh, English versions of classic literature are reproduced from copies called manuscripts. The original writings, known as autographs, were lost many years ago. So if the gap between the autograph and the earliest manuscript is wide, then the chance for error is also large. But if that gap is narrow, then the chance for error is small. To put this in perspective, let's, let's just see quickly how the New Testament stacks up against other classical ancient literature. I have a chart here. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> so, Homer's Iliad was first written in 800 BC, but the earliest copy that we have is from 400 years later in 400 BC. So the time gap between the original and the copy is 400 years. Tacitus Annals has a 950 year gap between the original writing and the earliest copy. But in contrast, though, let's see how the Gospel of John stacks up. So you have a 400 year time gap, a 950 time year gap, and then in John's Gospel, only 50 years difference between the original autograph and the first manuscript. John's Gospel is written somewhere between 70 and 80 AD. Only 50 year difference between the original autograph and the earliest copy. That's massively significant. The second reliability factor is to see how many copies of the document exist. The more copies, the more you can kind of fact check to see if there are any major discrepancies or differences between these documents. There are over 1,800 copies of Iliad, so that seems good, right? Uh, there are only 31 copies for Tacitus, not so good. Anyone want to guess? For John's Gospel? Anyone want to guess for the New Testament? Any guesses? Three, good guess. Twelve, I think. I don't have great hearing. Here, here's, here's what it is. 6,000 plus, and we discover more every single year. 6,000 plus copies of Old Testament or New Testament manuscripts. Now, the thing that I find surprising is that no, no one would really challenge the reliability of these two works. We find them in most academic settings. We teach them in a lot of our schools. But when it comes to actually stacking up how many copies we have to measure against, the New Testament stacks up quite well. Now, that's not all. I didn't know this until preparing for this message, actually. The scribes that would transfer these copies, they would take like a sharp little knife and they would create this sort of like grid paper and they would transfer letter by letter from a manuscript to the next copy. And then they would count up those squares. And if the squares weren't exactly the same on both the original one that we were working off of and their copy, they just burned the whole thing. Like, how's that for a commitment to accuracy, right? Like, this was their livelihood. Now, I think, I think that's all very interesting, and I could, I could probably geek out on that for a bit while longer. And while I think that's important, I don't want to miss something arguably even more important when it comes to Scripture. There's another way, I believe, in which the Bible is actually trustworthy. It's summed up in Paul's letter to a young apprentice named Timothy. Here's what he says. 
It says, God has breathed life into all scripture. It's useful for teaching us what is true. It's useful for correcting our mistakes. It's useful for making our lives whole again. For making our lives whole again. It's useful for training us to do what is right. By using scripture, the servant of God can be completely prepared to do every good thing. Paul says that scripture isn't just a a book. It's not just even a library of books. It's actually God breathed. It has the breath of God in it. It is in some sense alive. It's living. I think it might be helpful to think about it like a, like an old castle. Anyone ever gone to another country and visited an old castle before? Like they're they're really beautiful to behold. They're usually pretty massive, but they also feel like like kind of dark and and cold and lifeless, don't they? You, it feels like a, like a museum, sort of. But what if you were, like, walking through an old castle and you discovered that a family was living there? I mean, first, you'd probably have all sorts of questions. How did you get here? What's going on? But in some sense, though, that castle would feel less like a museum and it would feel like it's living and breathing. A family actually living in that castle would make that castle live and breathe in a way that would not be possible if it were just a museum. I believe, in, a, in the same way, this ancient collection of poems and letters and genealogies is living. It's alive. God, God meets us in these words. Scripture invites us not just to simply read it or study it, but to experience God through it. Because the Bible wasn't written to us, but it is most certainly written for us. And I believe that when we dive into the word honestly, begin to see our own story in the stories of the Bible. This idea of the Bible being God-breathed is also called, in some circles, inspired. And I love the way uh, N.T. Wright puts it. He says, inspiration is a shorthand for the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books God intended his people to have. The books God intended his people to have. Personally, I find the Bible to be trustworthy because I've picked it up, I've read it, I've grappled with it, and I honestly, I've felt the stirring in my soul in a way that nothing else ever has. I've, I've disagreed with it, I've been convicted by it, I've been brought to tears through it, but it has never failed to stir, though. I've experienced God through the words of the Bible. Now, remember that Paul didn't say that Scripture is just God-breathed. He also said it's useful, right? Useful for what? It's teaching what's true, correcting our mistakes, training us to do what's right, and making our lives whole. I think sometimes really well-meaning people try to, like, defend the Bible as reliable, simply as sort of a mental exercise, and we forget, actually, that its purpose isn't just for us to memorize it, to know more things about it, but to be made whole through it, I believe that we experience God in a really profound way when we dive into the Bible like that. There's a story that maybe you heard. There's a comedian named Kevin Hart. He's approximately this tall. And uh, he, he did an interview with Oprah years ago where he talked about how when he had started off as a comedian, things, things were pretty rough. And his, his mom had offered to help him with rent um, to kind of get his career started. And uh, so he was getting some gigs. He was traveling around, but things weren't going all that great, and uh, so he went to his mom and said, Mom, I'm really struggling. Can I get uh, a rent check for next month? And she said, are you reading your Bible? 
He says, I don't really have time for that. Uh, and so she said, well, go, go read your Bible and then, and then we could talk. And so he somehow made it happen and then went the next month to ask for a rent check. And she said, are you reading your Bible? And he said, Mom, I don't have time for that. And this went on for a, a couple of months, actually, until he finally kind of hit rock bottom. Like he, he couldn't afford rent anymore. Like he, he was sort of at the end of his rope. Went and pleaded to his mom one last time, but she, she, wasn't, she just wasn't budging. So he went back to his one-room apartment, kind of broken, kind of shattered, and was like, all right, well, I'll give this Bible thing a try. And he opens it up, and eight rent checks fell out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what I'm not saying, (laughs) don't tweet this. (laughs) I'm not saying that that old dusty Bible on your shelf, you open up and money's just going to come pouring out. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is I believe that God meets us really profoundly when we dive into his word honestly, without presupposition, with, without a desire to attack or correct someone else. When we dive into his word and say, God, show me what you want me to see. Reveal the parts of my heart that are busted up and toxic, that aren't honoring to you. Speak to me in a new and powerful way. I believe that God does. He has for me. And what I found that in, in times of joy and in times of desperation, there is, there is wisdom in this book. That when I've, I've sat and just sort of beheld the beauty of creation, think of the psalmist that says, the heaven declare your righteousness. When I, I lost a close friend of mine in college, I was comforted by the words that said, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. When growing up, I felt unlovable. I felt like an outcast, like, like no one even saw me. I was comforted by the words that said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible isn't just reliable because of some manuscripts and some research that we did. The the Bible is reliable because I know there are plenty of us in this room who have begun to trust in it and it's changed your life. That That God's met you in a really mysterious and sacred way. It's not just a collection of works for us to kind of believe in our brains. I believe it's a vehicle by which God works in our hearts. And when we read it, when we study it, when we pray over it, I believe that we meet Jesus. Theologian Peter Enns puts it this way. It says, the Bible doesn't say, look at me. It says, look through me. I love that. Look through the lens of Scripture at your current relationships, at your workplace tension, when it comes to living in community comes to your neighbors and that one co-worker that stomps on your last nerve every day, don't just look at it, look through it. So how do we actually do that? How do we look through the Bible? Well, John 7, 17 challenges this way. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teachings comes from God or whether I speak on my own. It's like almost a dare, isn't it? Do you want to know if, you want to know if I'm legit? You want, to know, you want to know if I'm for real? Try it. Like, like, live it out. Dive into this collection of ancient writings and see if your life isn't radically 
changed. He's inviting us to trust him, to trust in God's word. Personally, I believe what we find in scripture isn't so much a set of beliefs. It is a way of being in the world, a way of being fully human, a way of living how we were actually intended to live. It means that we can trust Jesus when he says it's actually better to give than receive. Some of you have experienced that. It feels so counterintuitive, but when you did it, you're like, you know what, there's truth in that. We can trust when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not in a million years would I ever come up with that on my own. But I'll tell you, as someone who has stumbled along that path for a while, when I'm actually able to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me, it changes my heart in a way that I can't describe. We can trust when Jesus says those who lose their life will find it. The first will be last and the last will be first. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna wanna issue a challenge and the challenge is pretty simple. The challenge is this, to read it and live it out. Whether you're a veteran Christ follower, you're brand new to this thing, or you're sitting there thinking, no way. I would invite all of us to try that, to actually read it, to actually live it out. So here are some simple steps to get started. Uh, the first is this. Get a Bible reading program. Now, uh, there's tons of them. Uh, not surprising, we actually have one. The Community Bible Reading Plan is one to try, and we'll send you stuff Monday through Friday. Uh, and it usually corresponds with what we're, uh, what we're teaching here on Sunday mornings, which is a really, really great way, not, not only to dive deeper into what we're talking about, but I think to prepare your heart for the following weekend. Um, there's plenty of people across all 10 locations already, and even further than that, that are a part of this reading program. You can sign up and do that. You can also download the YouVersion Bible app, and if you search plans, there's like just short of a trillion. There's a ton in there. So you can find one of those. Plus, if you download that, you'll always have your Bible with you right on your phone. How handy is that? Second challenge is this, um, to read the Bible in community. You, you'll probably hear me uh, beat this drum a lot. It's, it's great to read it by yourself. I, th- I think the Bible is meant to be read in community. We do life better in circles than in rows, right? That could be in your small group. That, that could be with your spouse. That could even just be leaving here and grabbing a couple of friends like, hey, can we just do this? plan together? Can we just try it out for a month, for a couple months? If you have a lot of questions, an alpha course might be perfect for you. We run those here all the time. You can look on the website. It's a great opportunity to just simply ask any and every question that you might have. And the last step is this. Attend a how to read the Bible class. How to read a Bible class. We're actually hosting one here August 10th. And it's a really, really great opportunity to just kind of get some footing around how do I actually read this thing? Because plenty of us have probably dove into this and we've found it to be really frustrating and really overwhelming. This four-week course can help you kind of get some footing in that regard. Here, here's what I would say, though. Whether, whether you're starting out, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, or, or you're still like a full-fledged skeptic, I, man, I hope that you feel the freedom here to walk your journey out. We, we want to be the kind of people that, that foster discussion and dialogue and conversation. And regardless of where you find yourself in that journey, man, I hope you know that you're not alone. It's one of the things that I really love about this church, to be honest. There's so many different stories, so many different life stages. We come at it from so many different 
perspectives. You're not alone here. And we invite you to have a conversation. We welcome thoughtful approach to faith and life. And we really hope that you find this place to be a safe community to do that. I came across this quote uh, in preparation for this talk. It says, it is a mistake to look to the Bible to close a discussion. The Bible seeks to open one. It's a mistake to, to come to this thing to try and shove it down someone's throat. It's a mistake to come to it, see it as a silver bullet, to try and win an argument. Man, I, I believe when we, when we dive into this messy, complicated, beautiful book, that we will begin to not only understand something about ourselves, but about God and the nature of the universe. And it's scary at times. It's challenging at times. Man, my, my prayer is that we would more and more each day become a people. Don't, don't seek to just simply close discussions, but invite people to open them. So why don't we do that together? Why don't, why don't we dive into the word together? Why don't we read it honestly and see if we don't meet Jesus there? Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your son, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word, God, that you, you meet us in the messiness of our lives. And I pray for any of us that are maybe feeling daunted by or overwhelmed by or apathetic toward, God, that you, you give us courage to just maybe take one next step to maybe loosen our white-knuckle grip a little bit and just say, okay, God, I'm, I'm trusting that you're gonna speak to me to trust you to change our lives. And God, I'm so grateful that your word doesn't, doesn't hide the stories of grief and pain and doubt and struggle. And you invite us to enter into those things with honesty, to look each other in the eye and say, it's gonna be okay. God, I pray that we would more and more each day learn to trust you, trust what you say is true about us and about you and about the world. And may we allow ourselves to be changed. Thank you, God, that you love us and you know us. And I pray all these things in your name. Amen.